Can I tell you a story? No? Oh, all right. I want to tell you, I'm going to do it anyways. I'm sorry. I'm going to sorry. I want to tell you about a time that I realized I was being racist. 18 years ago, I moved to South Africa outside of Cape Town to a little town called Stellenbosch. And I was going there to work with a ministry uh, that was doing community development in the townships outside of Cape Town. If you're unfamiliar with South Africa's history, uh, they had a system of state-mandated, race-based segregation called apartheid uh, that didn't fall until 1994. The effects of that system are still present today on the country, where you have rich white communities, and then right adjacent to each one, there is a township, which is essentially a, a slum. And the housing in these townships range anything from cinder block homes to, you know, cardboard walls and corrugated tin roofs, uh, you know, shacks. And I had visited this ministry uh, the summer before I moved down there. And while I was visiting, God broke my heart for the people of South Africa, particularly the black poor living in the townships who suffered from poverty and crime and the effects of the AIDS crisis. Now, I had the privilege of working with, with men and women in the local community. I got to dream up with them and then implement uh, discipleship and development opportunities. And I got to see how God worked in and through these beautiful people. But every day, I drove from my safe white neighborhood into the Cape Flats, which is it's this area between Cape Town, the two hillsides, and a couple million people live in townships there. And so I, I drove every day from, from my community down into the townships. And our coworkers in the townships, they had determined it was unsafe for us to live there. We couldn't live in amongst them. They, they said, no, you have to live outside. And they had come up with rules for us where we weren't allowed to be there after dark because it was just unsafe for us. So every day, I went through this double culture shock, you know, driving in and out of affluence and then extreme poverty from a white community to a black community and back again. Now, Stellenbosch, where I lived, uh, it had one of the country's major universities and a, a Dutch Reform seminary. And historically, it was known as one of the places that had developed the theological justification for apartheid. Now, I told you this was a story about a time that I realized I was being racist, so let me get to my confession. Every day, I worked with these people that I loved. And then I'd drive home, and I'd go to the grocery store, and I'd wonder, you know, these white Afrikaners in the store with me, going about their business, do they even care? I mean, do they know what's going on down the road? Do they even care about these people that I love? I mean, prior to moving there, I had, I had done my homework. You know, I had done research on the AIDS crisis and the impacts of poverty uh, on the people in the townships. I had read books like Cry the Beloved Country, uh, Long Walk to Freedom, Kaffir Boy. You know, I had watched movies, you know, like The Power of One and Lethal Weapon 2. So I knew one simple truth. In South Africa, the black people were good and the white people were bad. That's what I had learned. And I even experienced firsthand some white people, some white friends of mine, exhibiting overt racism towards black or colored people at restaurants or even at church. So my heart grew hard towards the white South Africans, and I developed assumptions and some baseline prejudices. And if I encountered, you know, black South African, I, I would expect the best from them. And if they did bad things, you know, I'd chalk it up to their difficult socioeconomic situation. And if I encountered white South Africans, I would expect them to be the worst. 
And I looked for any opportunity to confirm my suspicion that they possessed a strand of racism in their very DNA. And then, through a series of events, you know, the Holy Spirit working on my heart, I realized I was being racist towards white South Africans. Yes, there were some jerks in the community, but I began encountering people, well, with, with big hearts and deep compassion and way more experience and wisdom and insight into the complexities of their society than I had. I was guilty of the very thing that I judged them for in my heart. It was like Romans chapter 2. I had no excuse for in passing judgment on another, I condemned myself because I, the judge, practiced the very same things. Now, why do I tell you this story? Well, because this morning we are going to talk about race and the gospel. I don't know if you know, tomorrow is Martin Luther King Day. And so, you know, as Kevin and I looked at the the teaching calendar, we thought this would be a good opportunity to address a topic that has been such a hot-button issue in our culture. In fact, this week and next week, we're going to tackle two topics that are often associated with partisan politics. And we're going to think think through them from a gospel perspective. This week, we're talking about race. Next week, we'll look at the sanctity of human life and the evil of abortion. But the kingdom of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ does not belong to a political party or even a particular political persuasion. Instead, the kingdom radically cuts across our human divides. And in fact, it demands allegiance from all sides. It's kind of like Joshua. I don't know if you've read the book of Joshua recently. On on, the eve of battle, he encounters the angel of the Lord, the commander of the Lord's armies, and he sees this scary powerful angel, and Joshua looks at him and says, oh, are you for us or are you for them? And the angel says, no, I'm the commander of the Lord's armies. The implication, it's not you or them, it's me. Are you with me is the question. See, the question is not, is Jesus for right or left? Is Jesus for us or them? The question is, are we for Jesus and the things that he cares about? Now, I know that when I uttered the word racist a few minutes ago, or when, I, when we put up the slide, it's going to say um, race and the gospel, that when, when that goes up there, immediately it raises the blood pressure of many people in this room. It makes us nervous, okay? Our wider culture has exploded over this topic over the last few years, and it feels scary even to mention it in church, okay? I get that. But this is precisely why we must talk about it, or we're going to talk about it this morning, Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is good news. And therefore, it has good news even for this conversation. Now, before I get ahead of myself, let me tell you our main point. It's super simple, okay? One main point this morning, it's this. The gospel enables us to talk about race. That's as far as we're going to get. That the gospel enables us to talk about race. Maybe I need to lower our expectations for the morning. We're not able to exhaustively cover this historically complex issue in 35 minutes, but we can look at it from a particular angle, and my hope is that we can gain confidence to actually be able to talk about race in the future with friends, family family members, or one another. So let me say it again. The gospel enables us to talk about race. Now, I, I don't know where you're coming from. Maybe you've been you know, orbiting the planet on the International Space Station for the last few years, or maybe you're hiking the Pacific Crest Trail, and you didn't know that this was a hot-button issue. And if that's you, I'm sorry, let me bring you up to speed and introduce some of our difficulty. Okay? Race is hard to talk about. 
We can just acknowledge that. And one of the reasons that it's hard to talk about is because it's such a broad topic. And too often, our conversations about race feel like we have to talk about everything in every conversation. And it's overwhelming because it's so broad. Race is also a very complex topic. You know, there may not be agreement on definitions or categories or even starting points. And, and if we're honest, we would prefer simple ways out of the complexity. So it's broad, it's complex, but race is also a very painful topic to some and not painful at all to others. So you have this, this disparity. For some, to talk about race, well, it's supercharged and personal, and, and entering the conversation, they carry profound hurts from the past. And for others who don't carry that, it feels, well, kind of dispassionate, theoretical. They can talk about ideas. And this disparity, well, it, it presents a problem for, for us because we don't always know what we're getting into when we stumble into the conversation. So race is hard to talk about. But I would add to this that maybe, just maybe, too often we have been, well, to use the language of Romans 12, we've been conformed to the patterns of this world, and we need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. That is, we have been discipled by the ways of the world, and we need to have our minds reshaped by the Word of God. So we want simple answers to a complex problem because the world has discipled us into expecting simple answers that can be captured, you know, in memes or sound bites or gotcha moments or, you know, 240 characters. We've been discipled to just opt for criticism because criticism feels like the easiest way out. We take the simple pot shot at someone and we can disregard the complexity and get out as quickly as possible. Simultaneously, we want comfort. Because the world has discipled us into thinking that we deserve to feel good. And, you know, thinking through hard issues like this might lead to sanctification or transformation, which is uncomfortable as it requires taking up a cross. And we don't want that. Simultaneously, we want to feel morally right, maybe even morally superior. Because the world has told us, you know, to get on the right side of history and we fail to see that, well, we live in a fallen world. And right and wrong are defined by the Bible and not the prevailing winds of the culture. But friends, the good news is that the gospel cuts across all of these and it offers real redemption for real problems. So where do we see the gospel intersect this topic of race? If you have a Bible, turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 11 to 22, but let me, let me set the stage first. Paul is writing from prison. Okay, he is a Jew waiting to go on trial before a Roman or a Gentile emperor, and he's writing to the church at Ephesus. Now imagine with me, okay, go back in time, first century Ephesus. It's a major city in Asia Minor. It's an important cultural and political and economic center of the empire. Within the city, you have both, you know, wealthy silversmiths all the way down to poor slaves and everything in between. Religiously, there are, are Jews of the diaspora who've moved there, but also those who, well, they worship at the temple of Artemis, or they worship the emperor, or they worship the goddess Roma. Now, in this city, this major metropolitan city, a small church gets planted, and people begin gathering to worship 
a Jewish peasant named Jesus that was crucified by the empire at the behest of the Jewish authorities. And these worshipers that are gathering, they say that this Jesus has risen from the dead and he's now Lord of the universe. So in this, in this church, this gathering of people, you have rich and poor, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, men and women. And when this church, when they, when they break up into community groups, you know, midweek, and they, they go to, to share a meal, well, maybe some, some Greek community group leaders accidentally serve pork from the market. And some new members to their group, they're, they're Jewish, and they see this and they refuse to eat it. You know, they insult their hosts. They're offended by the meal, and they offend in refusing it. Maybe after dinner, they're sitting around the table, and, and they begin talking about, you know, culture and, and politics. Oh, man. And there's those in the church who have citizenship and all the attending privileges that come with it. But there's also those around the table whose, who's, well, their people were conquered by the Roman occupiers. They lost their ancestral lands to the empire. And so when they talk about, you know, stability and justice, when they talk about the, the Pax Romana that the empire offers, well, there's very different perspectives around the table. It's not hard for us to imagine the ethnic and racial difficulties that they faced there in the first century. Now, the question is, having been brought together into this church, what will keep them together? You know, it's one thing to draw a crowd of the interested, but when the rubber meets the road, when insults are inflicted, intentionally, unintentionally, cavalierly, when feelings are hurt and frustrations mount, what will hold this disparate group of people together? Paul writes and offers real hope, gospel hope. He says that unity is possible, that peace can be experienced, and more than that, something new and exciting and alive can grow up among these people. How? Well, he says it's through Christ. In his letter, Paul begins, you know, chapters 1 and 2, he lays out the abundant riches of God's grace that he lavished on us in Christ. He lays out the gospel, and in the first 10 verses of chapter 2, he explicitly says, you've probably memorized some of these verses, you know, by grace we have been saved through faith in Jesus Christ. There's incredible news of God's amazing grace, and by faith we can go from death to life. And not only this, but having been brought to life, there are good works that God prepared beforehand, that he wants us to walk in. And what are these good works? What is the life that we're meant to live having come to faith? Well, the first thing he offers the Ephesian church is peace and harmony across racial lines. They can have peace. They can end hostility. They can grow together in the Lord. Let's read it. Ephesians chapter 2. Verses 11 to 22. Paul writes this. He says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now... In Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility 
by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Wow. Wow. Let's think for a minute minute what this says to the Ephesians in the first century. Okay, we'll start with them. What does this say to that Ephesian church? Well, simply we could say, that race was an issue, and that the gospel was the way forward, okay? But let's look closer. He begins by pointing out, verse 11, he says, at one time, okay, at one time there was division, circumcision, uncircumcision, there was separation, there was alienation, there were, you were strangers. At one time, you know, they gathered up into their cultural and social corners, they experienced alienation, separation, there was hostility between Jew and Gentile. But then verse 13, he says, but now. That was then, but now, you who were once far off have been brought near. Something has happened that can change the predicament of animosity, hostility, and division. How? Paul goes on. Christ is their peace. He made them both one. He has broken down the dividing wall of hostility, and he creates one new man, so making peace. Paul says Christ is the answer. He has reconciled them both to God in one body through the cross. See, their vertical relationship with God is key to their horizontal relationships with one another. By being reconciled to God, they are brought together in in the worship of the one true God. And through this experience, Christ makes peace and harmony with one another possible. So verse 19, he goes on, So then... Okay, you have at one time, but now, into the future. So then, Paul holds out this amazing hope that they are no longer strangers, no longer aliens, but fellow citizens, members of a household built into a holy temple. Do you see it? There's life and purpose on the other side of their hostility and division. It's not just that, that he you know, ends the hostility. It's not just that they go from you know, negative five to zero. No, no, no. They're they're brought to zero, and then they're being built up into something amazing. The very temple of God, together, they they will be the place where God's presence dwells on earth. Now, this message would have been shocking to Jew and Gentile alike in the (laughs) Ephesian church. Okay? The, The Jews knew, they knew that they were the special people of God, set apart, chosen by him in his plan of redemption. They knew that. And, and the Gentiles, any Gentiles who knew anything about the Jews, they knew that the Jews thought of themselves as set apart by God, chosen by God. 
And the Gentiles knew that, that to join them, to join the Jews, to get in on this plan of redemption, well, it meant becoming just like them in all of their cultural and ethnic habits and rituals, including circumcision, which for adult males, scary thing. Okay? So there's division. There's hostility. They knew that they were separate. And when Paul says they can be one, well, this is astounding. But what I want to suggest is that, well, what Paul points out is that they had the story wrong. Now, there's, there's hints along the way to where the story was going, but somehow they missed it. If you go all the way back, God told Abraham that through his family, all the nations of the world would be blessed. God told Israel in their law that they would be a light to the nations. God told Israel through their prophets that one day the nations would stream in and participate in the worship of the one true God. It was there all along the way. The nations are meant to be included. But somehow they missed it. They assumed that this meant that their enemies would be crushed and dragged in, not that the son would die for them so they could be invited in. They missed it. So in chapter 3, if we were to keep reading, we'd see in verses 5 and 6, Paul calls this misunderstanding a mystery. Like, like a good novel where something hidden is all of a sudden revealed, Paul says this mystery has now been revealed. That the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. See, the Ephesians, they needed to get hold of the right storyline that they might be brought together, the gospel storyline, in order to overcome their hostility. So that's the gospel for the Ephesians. But let's, let's bridge the context now and see how can we bring this good news into the present for us. Well, about the Ephesians, we said that, that race was an issue and that the gospel was the way forward. And for us today in 2023... I want to say that today, race is an issue. And the gospel is still the way forward. And while the Jews and the Gentiles, they, they were living according to the wrong storyline, today, our, our culture, well, it has a completely different story altogether. And one of the problems, one of our challenges today, is that we buy into the, the cultural categories, we're conformed into the thought patterns of this world, and then we try to sort out our problems with the very same faulty categories that the world offers us and that landed us in this situation in the first place. Like the Ephesians, we need to, to re-grasp the storyline so we can begin to talk about our sin, to talk about justice, to talk about God's grace and unity within the body of Christ. See, the world's categories are they're but a dim reflection of reality. The world's categories are a dim reflection of biblical truth. They, they, they grasp at it. They grasp at reality. They grasp at truth without getting a hold of it. So, when it comes to race, our culture puts the goals, okay? There, there's two goals of unity and diversity, and our culture puts these goals at odds with one another. Okay? They put them in competition, and they don't know how these two things can fit together. So, generally speaking, I'm going to speak... In generalities, and that's dangerous, but go with me for a second. Okay, generally speaking, those in the majority, they look at the past, and, and they say, well, 
we went wrong when we fixated on difference and diversity. We went wrong when we discriminated according to race. So today, well, let's, let's not do that. Instead, let's pursue unity. Let's look for unity, the unity of the human race, and try to be colorblind because, well, we're all one. That's the way forward. The goal is unity. And generally speaking, those in the minority, well, they look at the past, and they see the sins committed by those in the majority, and they feel that to ignore diversity now is to ignore that anything bad ever happened. There can be no unity without first working for justice. And so for many, though not all, for many, justice gets boiled down to just mean diversity everywhere. Diversity is the goal. That's how we achieve justice. And then these goals, unity, diversity, they're put into competition. They're seen as being at cross purposes. But here's the truth. Neither unity nor diversity are good goals in and of themselves. You can achieve bad unity. You can achieve bad diversity. See, a totalitarian regime can achieve a form of unity. And there's lots of diversity in hell. These can't be goals on their own. Now, the Bible comes along and says both are good things. Both are possible, but a part of a bigger story, a bigger storyline. The Bible says that what begins with creation. God created one human race. There's unity. According to the Bible, there's only one race, okay? Adam. Well, until Christ comes along, but we'll get there in Romans 5. Okay, there's one human race, Adam. There's unity. There is such a thing. But the Bible also acknowledges that along the way, various tribes and tongues and nations are developed. There are many ethnicities. There is such a thing as diversity. And the Bible sees both. And racism or ethnic partiality, well, it's evil. It's evil because it dehumanizes people. It says that, that some one group of people is less than, they're not a part of the human race. They're less than the rest of us. And it denies the dignity of God's creation. It pits one part of God's creation against another part. Now the hope of the Bible, which we, what we saw in our passage, is that our unity and our diversity can be brought together without competition. On the one hand, the various ethnicities, okay, the, the diversity can be made one. They can be united through Christ as a, a new man, a new spiritual race is created through Christ. On the other hand, this unity does not ignore, but it celebrates the diversity. We're told in Revelation 5, when we get a vision of the end, that Christ, there's, there's this worship service going on. They sing this song that worthy is the Lamb. Why? Because he ransomed people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And he makes them a kingdom and priests to our God. Rather than being seen in competition, Christ brings our unity and our diversity as humans into harmony as they join together to sing of his glorious grace. When you get to heaven, there will still be diversity even as we're all perfectly united and sinless. Now, the world not only misunderstands these twin goals of unity and diversity, but they, the world also misunderstands what went wrong along the way and then the solution, how, how we can reach these goals. And this misunderstanding can be seen through the categories that the world uses of oppressor and oppressed or perpetrators and victims. Many in our world rightly, they rightly want to see justice done in places where there's injustice. 
And this is good and right. The God of the Bible is a God of justice. Read the book of Proverbs and hear him rail against unjust scales. Okay? God is a God of justice. But this desire for justice can be misapplied and used to create two categories of people, oppressor and oppressed. Either you are part of the privileged majority and therefore an oppressor, or you are an underprivileged minority and therefore oppressed, and according to the world, there's no other options. But un unfortunately, when, when these categories get applied, then both sides of the argument fall into using these categories. So one group will call the other group racist, and then in turn, that group will, will turn around and cry foul and call them, you know, wokesters or hypocrites. But both are drawing lines and standing on one side over against the other, pointing fingers and slinging rocks. And again, the Bible tells a different and better story. The Bible says that while created good, we all have fallen short of the glory of God and devolved into sin. We saw this in Romans 3. We'll see it again in the coming weeks. As fallen humans, we all, all are in need of a Savior. Rather than two categories of oppressed and oppressor, we have only one category of fallen and sinful human. Rather than drawing a line between groups of people and saying this side is evil and this side is good, we need to know that the line of good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. So the Bible tells a better story as to what went wrong, but also a better story as to our solution. And friends, we're getting to the heart of the gospel here. Our reconciliation with God and one another comes through the cross. Our hostility is killed on the cross. Now, this, this, the way this happens, the cross declares what went wrong in stark terms. That we all have sinned. All of us. The cross says that we are more sinful than we possibly can imagine because it cost the Son of God his life to pay for our sins. That's how bad we are. So, so I'm guessing that most of us have a, a slim perspective on just how sinful we really are. So when we have the conversation about race and people come to us and say that we may be blind to some sins that we've committed, we shouldn't recoil at that accusation as if it's impossible. As those who believe in the, the sinfulness of sin as displayed on the cross, we should know that sin blinds us. And we should be prepared to humbly listen and beg the Holy Spirit to convict of sin where it's taken place. The gospel enables us to talk about it without getting defensive, without reacting, without recoiling, without attacking back. But the cross also tells us where those sins are paid for. We don't have to pursue public forms of virtue signaling and self-flagellation in order to appease our social media audience. No. We flee to the cross we ask God for forgiveness, and we behold in Christ God's answer, paid in full. We can repent to one another and then rejoice together that atonement and salvation are actually possible. Our sins have been paid for in Christ. So we might say that in this conversation, the gospel for those in the majority is that yes, we're sinners. Of course, don't be afraid to admit it. But also, we are saved sinners. 
And you don't need to heap on yourself and carry tremendous guilt that's already been paid for on the cross. And in this conversation, we might say that, that the gospel for those in the minority is that in the end, justice will be done. God cares about justice. And it will be done either on the cross or in the final judgment. There will be punishment for sins. But likewise, those in the minority also stand before the cross in need of salvation. Now, to be united, both are called to die. Those who have offended need to die to themselves enough to repent at the foot of the cross and turn from their sin. And those who've been offended against need to die to themselves enough to let go of their right to be angry and to learn to forgive. And the gospel enables both. The gospel enables us to talk about race. That though we are more sinful than we possibly could imagine, we are also more loved than we ever dare dream because Jesus was willing to pay that price for us. We can be given better categories and a better storyline to understand our human divisions and to pursue real harmony of unity in diversity. We need not fear the conversation because it's another opportunity to lift up our Savior and the goodness of our gracious God. So, race and the gospel. What now? Okay, what, what, do we, what do we leave here with? Well, if the gospel enables us to talk about race, then church, talk about it. Be willing and confident to have conversations about race. They're going on in our culture. Let's lead those around us into considering the better storyline of the gospel. Now, practically, maybe that's not enough, so let me give us five things. You've all got a hand. Pick one. You've got five fingers. We'll work through this, okay? Five things that we can do practically. Number one, listen. Listen, okay? Huge qualification on this one. Keep your foot firmly on the brake and, you know, grab that emergency brake and stop yourself from speaking and just listen, okay? Just listen. Don't, don't feel the need to speak right away. Another clarification, don't listen to respond. Listen to understand. Let me say that again. Don't listen to respond. Don't just listen waiting for, for how you can chime in. Just listen to understand. There's a huge difference. I mean, like, like the husband who tries to fix all of his wife's problems when she comes to him about her hard day. You know, I would say, shut up and listen. Okay, listening often is the solution. Friends, let's be those who listen. Second, repent. Repent. We will only discover unity in the church when there's repentance. We have to be united in confessing our guilt before we can be united in forgiveness through the cross. Now, we all, all of us live in a complex world, and therefore every one of us is implicated in the sin of racism. Whether it's personal or systemic or economic or globalized, we're all implicated we can't help it. We are, I, I'm a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips. It's just true. It's the stain of our globalized world. We can't help it. So we have room to confess until Christ comes. We can all confess sins of, of commission, sins of omission, things we've done, things we've left undone. We can confess conscious sins and unconscious sins. At a bare minimum, maybe we need to repent of a lack of empathy for brothers and sisters who are suffering. Let's have a posture of repentance. So, listen, repent. Third, forgive. 
forgive. This needs to be a community that is quick to forgive. In our fallen state, our sin blinds us and makes us overly sensitive to the sins of others and desensitized to our own. Sin blinds us and makes us quick to condemn others and quick to forgive ourselves and let ourselves off the hook. And we need the Holy Spirit to grant us the fruit of forgiveness and then we need the discipline of forgiveness. <laughs> you know, Peter asked Jesus, how many times, Lord? Seven times seven? Seventy times seven? You know, Matthew and Mark, Luke, I don't remember which one says which. It's a lot. How many times should we forgive? A lot. Keep going. Let's be those who can honestly, honestly pray the Lord's Prayer. Forgive our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Listen, repent, forgive. Fourth, rejoice. Rejoice in the diversity and unity of Christ's church. Don't despise and talk trash about what Christ bought with his own blood. The universal church is broad and diverse and glorious. The local church is doing its best to reflect that glory. Rejoice in the diversity and unity that we do have. In this room are those from a variety of ethnic backgrounds right now. In this room are those with a variety of personality types and occupations and family backgrounds. We have engineers and artists and Hufflepuffs and Slytherins and Gryffindors and the other one. In this room, there are people, you know, who would not be friends with each other. We have people who would not love each other were it not for Jesus. But because of Jesus, they do. And that's beautiful. That reveals the gospel. Let's rejoice in that. Don't let your vision or your hope for what the church could be stop you from loving the church for who she is right now. Okay? Listen, repent, forgive, rejoice, and lastly, love your neighbor. And when I say that, I mean like, like your actual neighbor. Okay? Love your neighbor. On my street, okay, the street that I live, there are African Americans and Mexican Americans and Japanese Americans and Indian Americans and Chinese Americans and Austrian Americans and Midwestern Americans. They're the weirdest ones. Um, what if I started there? What if I started loving them, those on my street, getting to know them and understanding their story and exposing them to the gospel story? What would that do for our community? What would that do for our conversations around race? Friends, what about you? Who's on your street? Who's in your apartment building? Who is your literal neighbor? Love them. Start there. Love your neighbor and see where it goes. This is not a, a woke project or a conservative project or a progressive project. This is no less than participating in the gospel storyline. The Father wills it, the Son enables it, and the Holy Spirit empowers it and gives the fruit. Church, let's live it. Amen?